Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Just one verse this evening. Philippians 1, 6. Before we start, let's bow our heads in a quick moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your steadfast love. We pray this evening, Lord, that the Holy Spirit come upon us to open up our hearts, to understand the word, and apply it to our lives. In your name, amen. So Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So the sermon title this evening is <clears throat> Eternally Secure in Christ. And I can remember when I was a kid, probably about three, four years old, my dad would pick me up and we'd be driving home and the speed limit was 45 and then it turned to 25 as we started going up the hill into town. And every time we got to that hill, I could tell because to the left there was this old plumbing store. This store was so old that it had any type of plumbing equipment you could need going all the way back to the 1800s. So if you were missing a part and you had an old house, this store would have it. And I remember as I would see it, I'd sit and I'd wait. My dad would ask me, do you want to drive? I'm like, yes, I want to drive. So I'd sit next to him and I'd put my hand on the steering wheel. And we'd steer as we went through town. I'd turn it a little to the left, the truck would go to the left. I'd turn it a little to the right, the truck would go to the right. So as far as my three or four-year-old understanding could perceive, I thought I was the one driving through town. Little did I know that my dad's knee was on the wheel and next to his knee was his left hand and his feet were on the gas in the brake. So from my perspective, I was driving the truck and it would turn left and right as I'd turn the wheel. But my dad had complete control of the vehicle as we went through town. Yes, a Christian believes. Yes, the person chooses Christ. Yes, the person makes a decision to follow him. So if you're a believer this evening, all of these things are true. You have chosen Christ for your salvation. You have exercised your will in coming to him. But only because God has first chosen you before the foundation of the world. Only because God had first placed his desire within your heart to do it. And the sad reality is, human beings, because of our sin nature, if we are left to ourselves, not any of us desire after God. And this is biblical. Paul tells us this in Romans 3, 10 for 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The truth about our human nature is that it's opposed to two things. The first thing is our sin nature is opposed to repenting, confessing our own sin. Secondly, our human nature is opposed to bowing the knee to Christ as Lord. We simply refuse to do this in our unregenerate, unsaved state. We want nothing to do with it. 
There may be times in an unbeliever's life, or maybe before you became a believer, there were times in your life when you could see yourself following the Ten Commandments. It made you feel good. There may have been a time in your life before you were a believer where you confessed that you even believed in God. It just made sense. But this is not repentance. This is not confession of sin. This is not bowing the knee. When talking to an unbeliever about God, when the conversation shifts from simply having a conversation about what they believe of to God, about God, shifting it over now to repenting and to submitting to his will, this is when people become angry. People will talk all day long about what they believe. But soon as you get to where a person needs to confess their sin and bow their knee to Christ the Savior as Lord, this is when the friction starts. The excuses come out. Well, I'm a good person. Never murdered. I believe in God. I used to go to church. But once the gospel is clear that Jesus is commanding all people everywhere to repent, once that's made known, all of a sudden it'll shift over to, well, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? Or how can an all-powerful God allow this world to have so much evil? Or how can we really even know that God even exists? So on one hand, it's okay to talk about what they believe, but then when it gets to the point where a decision has to be made, the excuses come out. Our understanding of God's character because of the fall is flawed. We do not see, comprehend, or understand who God truly is. We do not see our own spiritual deadness and our own need for a Savior and how sinfully flawed we are as human beings. Former agnostic turned Christian, I'm sure everybody's heard of him, C.S. Lewis, speaking of himself, at one point in C.S. Lewis's life, he was an agnostic. He became a believer. This is what he says. The Lord opened the gates of salvation to a person who was kicking, struggling, resentful, and looking for any way to escape God's calling. Now that's C.S. Lewis, one of the most profound Christian writers of the 20th century. Repentance was the furthest thing from the mind of C.S. Lewis growing up. He was opposed to God. He said he resisted God with all of his strength. But then one day, the Lord intervened. All through our lives, we resist God until he breaks us down. The only reason you ever came to Christ is because of God's grace that broke you down. Salvation is always of God. God is the active agent in our salvation. He is the one who does the saving. We are the passive agent in salvation. We receive the grace that he gives. God doesn't simply just do most of the work and allow you to do the other portion until your salvation is complete. If he did this, we would have never come. If God just left a small crack in your heart that's not filled, 
and expected us to fill that in order for the transaction to be complete, we would have stayed in that condition. We would have hid there and we would have remained there the rest of our lives. We would not have chosen Christ. Most Christians, when they're first saved, believed that the choice was of their own doing. That God was simply waiting there patiently for you to make that decision. He was tapping his toe on the ground waiting for you to come to your senses. This isn't true. If God did this, and if this was God's approach to salvation, if God was the passive one waiting for us to be the active one while we are sitting there in our unregenerate, stone-cold, spiritually dead heart, we would have never come to him. There may have been a point in your life when you look back and you're thinking, I realized that my lifestyle and my choices and everything else were offensive to God and I need to get right with him. So the process begins. You begin reading the Bible. You begin going to church. You begin talking to other Christians. You begin becoming interested in the faith, interested in Christianity. You start to set aside those old things that you used to do. You start to take on new activities. The result is you end up coming to salvation. You become saved. And this is biblical. The Bible teaches this. Those who seek after God, those who truly seek after him, will find him. And God calls us to come to him. That is true. Those who truly seek after God, find him. But we're only seeing it from our side of the coin. The other side will reveal that that desire, that awareness... That understanding that you need repentance and that you need a Savior did not originate in your heart. The Lord put it there. When people hear the word election, a lot of people get angry, even within Christian circles. That word does not sit well with many Christians. The questions come up. How could God choose some but not others? Or why wouldn't God choose everybody and, not, and leave some people? How, could, how does this work? Why would God not choose everybody? The truth is, if God didn't choose his people out of the world, nobody would ever have been saved. So election, rather than looking at it and objecting to God, think of it as God's grace to a fallen world that did not deserve to be saved. God elected a rebellious group of people who had no desire and no understanding of God. God elected an angry group of people who wanted to be left alone to their own sin. They're called Christians. If God didn't choose you, you would have never chosen him, and neither would anybody else. So the conclusion we come to is this. Naturally, a human being left to their own sinful state, there are no God-seekers. People may believe that God exists. People may believe that God is real. People even might even try to do good works to try to appease him. This shows that people have that natural understanding that they are guilty. It shows that when people try to appease God, they know by nature he's there. But they're not repenting, they're not confessing, they're not bowing the knee. They're trying to earn their salvation through works. Fallen humanity, left alone to their own sin, will never repent. 
and they will never bow the knee. They're always trying to save themselves or they're always trying to jettison the entire concept of morality and live the way that they want to live. This is why salvation is entirely of the Lord. And we see this. Many biblical examples, but let's pick one. King Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon, the most powerful man on the earth during this time, probably the most arrogant and prideful human being on the earth in his day. Nobody ruled over a more powerful empire than King Nebuchadnezzar that we see in the book of Daniel. He saw no need whatsoever to be worshiping God till the Lord gets a hold of him. And Daniel had said, he spent seven seasons out in the wilderness, whatever that means, seven years, seven seasons. He spent a long period of time in the wilderness. He went insane. King Nebuchadnezzar was broken. He bowed the knee to God and he repented. Daniel 4.37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The most powerful, prideful man on earth at the time was nothing for God to break. He repented. There's nobody outside of God's reach. There is nobody who God cannot save. There's nobody who's too sinful or too far gone. It's the only reason I have any confidence when I evangelize because if it was up to me or if it was up to the human will, there's no hope. But I know that if God can save Nebuchadnezzar, there's nobody that God cannot save. Now, understanding the nature of how all this works, again, we're born into sin. We're born out of fellowship with God. We must be born again. We must be reconciled back to God. We're dead to our sins and we're hostile to him. This is why eternal life can only come from the outside in. Because the inside of the human heart is dead. No work of faith can flow out of a dead heart. We must be given a new one. This means that the work done in our souls to regenerate us, to do the things we do as Christians, to believe, has to come from God. God never starts what he does not intend to finish. And we see this in the verse this evening in Philippians 1.6. It is God who begins the work and it is God who is faithful to complete that work because the source of salvation is completely from outside of our hearts. Before the foundation of the world, God chose to save his own by the Holy Spirit through the means of faith. He effectually applies his grace to the person. He works faith within the heart of the dead heart of the person who's unregenerate. So from the outside, God is working faith inside the dead heart. God begins the work. God begins the process. Once that faith enters in the heart, the per or maybe not even the faith has entered yet, God, from his preparatory grace, can stand outside and begin to work on an individual where they start to become convicted of their sin. They start to ask questions. The meaning of their life. The purpose of justice. What happens when I die? 
Why do I keep stumbling over the same wrong things over and over? There has to be a God. So it's at this time where God is working on the outside and the point of salvation is when he works his faith within the person's heart. At the point of conversion, the heart lightens up. Faith works within it. This enables the person to believe. Their heart is regenerated and renewed. Their will is renewed. They have now been persuaded to embrace Christ from the outside in. This is God's work. God is the active agent. We are the passive ones who receive this. And yes, we respond. Yes, we believe. Yes, we choose. Yes, we choose to exercise our will. But it's only because God has regenerated the heart who has enabled us to do this. God planned this work from the foundation of the world. There is no force on this planet, in this universe, that could stop this. God enables the work to take place, working faith in the person's heart. It is God who saves the person, And it is God who continues this saving work in the person's heart from the day they're born again to the day they go to the grave. All God's work. We see this in Acts 16, 14 taking place. Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Notice she heard the gospel message, but how did she hear? The Lord opened her heart. So when we preach, when we evangelize, when we teach, when we come along somebody, alongside of somebody who's struggling in this world and show them the love of Christ, what we have an opportunity for is the Lord to open up their heart. And if he does this, this is the means by which our preaching goes out. When we evangelize, I'm not so much concerned about the sinful heart of the individual. I'm concerned about articulating and preaching and demonstrating and being a true ambassador for Christ because I know the Lord can take the gospel and save any person that I come in contact with. So I don't rely on my abilities I don't rely on the cooperation of the other individual. I don't look at somebody and say, boy, they're so far gone, move on to the next. It doesn't matter. Whoever I'm standing in front of at that time is the person I'm evangelizing because like King Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord can break anybody down. The Lord can work faith in anybody's heart and save them. Just like we see here with Lydia. Sadly, for many believers, doubt creeps in from time to time. I think if we were to admit this, there's points that we think, did I blow it? We think we did our part in believing. We completed our role in becoming saved. We made a decision to keep the promise. But then we sin. We think we forfeited our end of the bargain. We didn't keep up our deal. Or we think to ourselves, maybe I was never really saved to begin with. So this doubt starts to creep in. We become unbalanced. We now focus on what we need to do to please God rather than staying in the place where we understand that we're only here because of God's grace. We step outside of the grace and go back to works. It's a temptation we fall into all the time. We begin to doubt our eternal security. 
What does the Bible have to say about our eternal security? Jesus says in John 10, 27 through 30, that the Father gives his sheep to the Son. Nobody can smatch, snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus' sheep will never perish. He gives his sheep eternal life. His sheep know his voice and they follow him. Notice all of the action is coming from God, giving the grace, doing the saving. It doesn't say God gives the grace and then you have to keep up your end of the deal. It doesn't say that. This is a gift from God. Evidence that you're truly saved. You know his voice. You discern biblical truth from error. You follow him. You faithfully serve him. You desire him. Your heart longs to be in his presence. Your heart longs to be in the word. Your heart longs to be in fellowship with other believers. You're becoming like him. Your character is changing. You're starting to see a big contrast from who you used to be to who you are today. You remain in him and you continue in him. And that desire every day you get up is there, it's there, it's there. This is evidence that you are saved. The unregenerate person cannot do these things without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 38-39 tell us, Death cannot separate us from the love of God. Neither can any supernatural entity. No ruler, nothing present, nothing in the future. No power or anything else in all creation. So I ask you this. Are you created? Yeah, God created me. Anything else in all creation includes you. You yourself cannot undo the grace that God has given you. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is all God's work. By the one-time death of Jesus on the cross, all those who have been saved by his blood are perfected forever. If left to yourself, you would have never believed and you would never be able to continue on that path. But if you are in the blood of Christ and his spirit has indwelled you, it is an absolute guarantee. Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. What can override that? What can come up alongside that and rival it and change it or misdirect? Now, nothing. Not even you. Who is the one who is faithful? You or God? Every time we sin, we're actually turning our back to God. Every time we sin, we're choosing our way over God. Even as believers, we do this. So every time we sin, what we're saying is, Lord, I want to separate from you and be my own person. We do this as believers. So the faithfulness isn't from us because we still sin. The faithfulness is from God and his grace and the power of the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8 it is the Lord who sustains us until the end. It is not you. It is not your ability. It is not your strength. It is not your willpower. It is not how well you can keep the law. We heard this morning that the law can only condemn. It is God's grace that saves us. Balancing this out a little bit, God's grace of perseverance does not mean a believer is immune to spiritual danger. We still fall into temptation. 
We still can believe lies. We still get it wrong. But regardless, God promises to keep us in his hands. God's grace of perseverance does not mean a believer is kept from sinning. We still backslide. We still live for our sinful nature. We're not immune to our sinful desires. But regardless of this, God disciplines us and he continues to work within us. God's grace of perseverance does not mean Christians can just be lazy in their faith. That I'm saved, everything's good, just go with the flow. When I die, I go to heaven. There's no responsibility in between. That's not what this means. Works don't bring us into the kingdom. Works can't, bad works can't get us taken out of the kingdom. But we're still required obedience and faithfulness to the law of God, to his moral law. It's still there. If the doctrine is tempting us to be lazy, and this is one of the things that people, they think, okay, if, if eternal, eternal security is true and it's real, that's just going to create a state of complacency within a Christian's heart where they're just going to coast. They don't have to do anything. They're going to become lazy. They're going to become ineffectual. They're not going to be doing enough for the kingdom, and they're just going to drift back into an unsafe state. That's not what the Bible teaches. We need to be constantly analyzing our heart for these types of things. It should produce in us so much gratitude and so much confidence. I remember when I was a kid and I'd ski. We'd go skiing up in the, uh, up in the UP. And there was one, this one um, snow hill that we went on that was real high lifts, but you had a strap. So it strapped you into the lift seat as you were going. I don't know how high it was. It had to be at least... 30, 40 feet. And then the next week we went to a different place. I think it was uh, called Whitecap Mountain. And they didn't have the strap. They didn't have the, the seatbelt on them. And it was even higher. And the wind was blowing. And the lift was shaking from left to right. See, knowing I was secure in that seat kept me comfortable. But the fear of not being secure, I was terrified I was just going to drop 40 feet to the ground. So understanding God's eternal security and his saving grace should be the motivating factor for us to be out there and doing more for God out of gratitude, out of confidence, out of boldness, out of thankfulness. Because we're not always living a life of timidity and fear, thinking now I've done it, now I've blown it, now God's angry with me, whatever it is, fill in the blank. It should bolden us. It should give us that confidence to keep going. This is where we place our hope as believers. If salvation depended in any measure on what we are able to contribute, there wouldn't be security at all. Our hope is not found in our ability to endure. Our hope is grounded in God's commitment to you. This is God's commitment that he will never turn away from you. And he promises us that in Scripture. Our ability, our endurance, our faithfulness, our will, our determination on its best day is still unstable. It can't be trusted. There really isn't a moment in our life or a day that goes by where we meet the requirements that God requests. We just can't do it. 
And when we try to take the reins and make it our own, we become discouraged, we become frustrated, and then we begin to doubt because we think there is this give and take. We think there is this dynamic of God does 90%, I do 10%. God does 99%, I do 1%. Whatever percentage you want to give it, we still think that there is something that we have to contribute in the sense to make God satisfied. We think to ourselves this, you really did it this time. Look, you say you're a Christian. How could you say those words that just came out of your mouth? Maybe I was never truly a Christian to begin with after what I just did. I blew it. God is mad at me now. And you know what? He has every right to reject me. We, we bring this into our heart. We bring this into our mind. We start to believe these lies. Rather than embracing the doctrine, we still have to put ourselves somewhere in it and mess it up. The truth is, in order for us to endure the end, we need a perfect source of endurance. In order for us to endure to the end, we need a perfect sense of hope, and that isn't found within our hearts. We simply don't have the ability. So the good news is that God knows this. He remembers we're made out of dust. He's aware of all of our fallings. We can't surprise him by our sin. You're not going to take him by... Surprise one day and he's like, boy, I had no idea you were going to do that. Can't happen. God is outside of time. He sees it all at once. Every little sin that you ever did and every little sin that you will ever do, God has seen it. So this is where grace comes in. Salvation is all of God in spite of yourself. Your sin is not powerful enough to undo the grace that God has given you. Your sin is not strong enough to overpower the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Your sin cannot nullify what God has foreordained before the foundation of the world. His grace of endurance has already provided you with everything you need. From the moment of your conversion to the day of your death, you are eternally secure in his hands. Let's pray. Father, your grace is, we can't comprehend it, which makes it so easy to doubt. But it's what your word says. Lord, we believe this, but Lord, help our unbelief. If we are outside of you this evening and we have not bowed the knee and we have not repented, Lord, such a wonderful gift you are offering for the person to take a hold of. We pray, Lord, by your saving grace that who we encounter, who we talk to and who we minister to and who we share our life with, that we know that salvation comes from you by working faith in their heart. Our job is to be faithful in our presentation and loving in our conduct. Lord, take away any pride that comes from trying to do it ourselves. Take away any guilt and shame that we think that can't be erased. Let us walk in boldness, gratitude, and thankfulness. In your son's name, amen.